0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host of the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Sharony e. Green, who is the author of the book *The Chase and Ruins: Zora, Zora Neale Hurston in Honduras*, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Dr. Green, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Reagan. Yeah, you, thank you can just call me Sharony. Okay. <laughs> I'll do that. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you today about uh, Zora Neale Hurston and her trip to Honduras. Um, before we get into that, I wanted to ask you a little bit about yourself. So I know this is not your first book. You've also written the books, uh, Remember Me to Miss Louisa, Hidden Black, White Intimacies in Antebellum America, and Cutting the Rug Under the Moonlit Sky, just to name a couple of the books you've written. Um, but this book is *The Chase in the Ruins*, and it looks at Zora Neale Hurston's travel to Honduras in 1947 and like the last years of her life. So I wondered if you could just tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write this book about Hurston. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, you called me doctor.
0: I'm a professor right now, um, but it is a second career. I was a newspaper journalist for many years. I started out at my hometown paper, the Miami Herald, and moved on to two sister papers, and newspapers as we know them seem to be going the way of the dinosaur, so I slowly made my way into academe while living in New York, and I saw the towers fall, and I was like, wow, if the world's coming to an end, I better figure this out. I'm going to have fun. Long story short, ended up in graduate school, initially in a dance program because I wanted to study the antebollum narrative involving Black women on my own body and I worked a lot with historians and they encouraged me to keep going. And so I ended up with a PhD. And because I was in the archives, looking at letters that women of African descent wrote um, to white men who owned them, I ended up writing, Remember Me to Miss Louisa, because it, I don't know, it was just striking to know that um, many women for whatever reasons, found favor in very messy ways um, with white men who freed them and their children owing to paternity reasons. Was it a beautiful story? Of course not. But we had, we had the archive to sort of uh, part the curtain on that past. And writing that book helped me see that I was really interested in nuances or stories that seemed to be silenced. And I think that would probably characterize my trajectory in the academy research-wise and even teaching-wise. I don't like to go where everyone else is going. (laughs) Maybe it's because of my journalistic past. I just want to sort of not necessarily chart a new path, but go find another story. And with Hurston, I stumbled upon that while doing research on Miami, post-war Miami, where I was born really interested in how that city uh, is sort of a space where people of African descent, including people from the Bahamas. So on my dad's side, I descend from Bahamian people. Um, They did some things that were pretty unexpected on the housing front. And I could share more about that in another another space or on on another platform. But just know that I discovered that while I was um, learning more about that, Narrative, Hurston was in Miami in 1950, famously working as a maid. And often when I hear that or read that, it just seems to be, oh, let's play our violin and feel sorry for Hurston. But as time went on, it was like, this is Zora Hurston. Like, she wouldn't want me feeling sorry for her. Why was she really in Miami? And um, I discovered that she was there trying to return to Honduras. And being a historian, uh, I went to the archive read her surviving letters
1: and I pieced together this narrative mm, Wow that is really fascinating um, that's so interesting I love that uh, that that she was in Miami and we know how she you know came to an end uh, people say like you know penniless and, and whatnot but you're also like revising that story for us um, and so and that, that gets to I guess my next question which is, Uh, Of course, many people know Zora Neale Hurston was an anthropologist, ethnographer, essayist, novelist, writer, woman of many talents, um, part of the Harlem Renaissance. And so I'm going to quote you because you begin the book with the sentence. um, You write, most people are aware of Zora Neale Hurston's legacy, do not know that she visited Honduras in 1947, staying eight months. While there, she wrote a book that many of her fans bypass." So I wondered why this visit to Honduras was overlooked, and and what does this time period illuminate about Hurston's life?
0: So I'm just going to go out on a limb here because, um, as you know, we have lots of Zora fans, and I don't want to um, upset anyone. I think many of us like to root for someone when they're winning. We can accept that they have sorrowful moments, But when things are more gray and we're not always sure what's going on, we set it to the side and we may return to it. And I think that would be part of what's happened here. I looked at some old photographs recently and realized Sarah Foniswani, the book that she wrote in Honduras, has been on my bookshelf for a long time. I mean, going back to my years in Detroit. So that would be in the 1990s. And I didn't read it critically until I started working on this book. So there's something about um, Zora in this instance with this particular book, you know, writing about Southern whites, you know, turn of the century story, uh, going against the grain. Uh, At the time, Black people weren't supposed to write about white people. And here she is wanting to get the attention of Hollywood. At the time, her friend Marjorie Rawlings had, you know, written a book the yearling that became a film. And she was longing for that kind of success because at the time Hollywood was interested in what was called crackerphilia, the experiences of Southern whites. So uh, this is a woman who's, you know, trying to stay fed and not unlike some of us. um, She went after what seemed to be trendy. It was trendy. But I think she was also just exhausted. Um, Her heyday, was beyond her in Harlem. Um, She's aging, some of us who are aging know that the grace period is over pretty quickly and you don't have a lot of time to keep making the same mistakes. And um, yeah, so she ends up in Honduras and I'm not sure if I'm answering totally answering your question, but um, know that Honduras is an interesting place. It's some of us who are Hurston fans and some of us, period, we can easily grapple with, say, Haiti or Jamaica, or even the Bahamas, because of the tourism narrative. And the, the Bay Islands may figure into that narrative, too. But in our present day, when we hear Honduras, some of us, uh, it seems to be down there with a lot of problems that some of us think we have, you know, Nothing to do with. But <laughs> we have, you know, especially if you live in the United States, you have a lot to do with what goes right and what doesn't go right in this country for a lot of the folks who are suffering in ways that we should be familiar with. So Honduras is is a lot to grapple with. It just seems so far away. We, we have headlines. We, we know that people are coming, fr- you know, from that direction to our border. And it seems so immediate. And so, but also so separate from us, some of us. And it's hard to knit Hurston into that narrative. Why her? Why then? Why there? And that is a moment for us to think about the anthropologist in her, the storyteller in her. It wasn't her first time there. She first went down there after she fell out with Langston Hughes over that play that was inspired by her life. And that first visit was a reconnaissance mission, it was like 29, 1930. And I think she always knew she was gonna go back and she did go back in 1947. Um, so I think that it's, it's just a hard narrative to, to um, situate her inside of, but if you go into the archive and she's there, I mean, the edited letters that uh, Carla Kaplan um, offered us in that wonderful volume, They've been published for a very long time, and uh, it's there. If you want to stick with Harlem, that's fine. But if you keep pressing through, and and a woman who doesn't necessarily appear to be a hero anymore doesn't make you feel very comfortable, that's fine too. But as I tell my students, we have to meet historical actors where they are. And there were moments when I had a difficult time with the and I was uncovering or, uh, learning more about, because I didn't necessarily uncover it again. These letters have been in the archive for a long time and Kaplan edited the letters for us to read. Um, but I had to learn to just sort of accept her, accept this historical actor, um, the way she, um, presented herself because she was very theatrical, very much a performer. And so even some of the things that she put down on paper, you 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 have to know that she knows exactly what she's saying at all times. So she copied so many things, had a copy of so much of the correspondence she sent out. So um, I think she knew she was going to have the last laugh. So penniless or not, um, (laughs) she was going to have the last laugh. At one point, she says, don't bother, you know, don't worry about me. Don't even try to figure me out. I'm someone you could never understand and I um I think she was so powerfully centered. She was a polymath. You know, she's a composer, she wrote plays, she wrote novels, she's this academic. And that's a lot for anyone to grapple with. Especially, you know, you have this black woman living in Jim Crow America. It's a lot to to unpeel.
1: Yeah, no, I think that definitely answers the question and I don't, I don't think you'll, you'll disappoint anyone. I I thought I found within that statement that you wrote that, you know, this tends to be an overlooked time. You know, I, myself, I'm a huge Zora fan and I'm an anthropologist as well. And so, um, I also knew about, you know, Jamaica and Haiti and these other places. I had, I also had no idea that she went to Honduras. So I just, so I find it, I found it fascinating. And I think you're, I think you were right to, to, to frame it in that way, um, and and so you know before she left for Honduras, you locate her living on this houseboat in uh, Florida, and I think it's called the Wanago, and um, and you write like two friends pay her a visit on the houseboat and suggest she go to Honduras to find these ruins of a lost Mayan city. And so I wondered, um, you know, why she wanted to go there, but but more so like what what did she hope to find, I guess, or can can you talk about this this idea of a Mayan city in Honduras? Again,
0: she she went down there in 1930. I don't know if she'd heard of this so-called lost city. And and one aside, there were so many ruins that could be found. In the book I mentioned, um, in the antebellum period, two white adventurers, I'll put that in quotation marks, <laughs> white men went down. And I think in One trip, they stumbled upon, I don't know, more than a dozen, maybe two dozen ruins, right? And you have more training in this area than I will ever have. But the point is, when she went down in 47, um, she didn't have too many more tricks in her bag. You know, she angered a lot of people in New York on the literary scene. Uh, Editors weren't publishing what she wanted to write. And this could have been one of those prideful moments when she would say, ha, I'll show them. Who knows? I know that she reached out to Jane Bilo, who's an anthropologist, a fellow cultural anthropologist, and she wanted Jane to travel with her. And Jane said no. Carl Van Becten said no. She was He was one of her confidants. And I think by this time, People were sort of holding her at arm's, you know, length distance. Langston Hughes, um, I believe, you know, he was hurt by what had happened. And if people don't know, she filed the copyright for the play in her own name, and that that he co-wrote with her, and he wanted the typist to receive credit, and she she was against that. This was in 1930, and so she files the copyright in her own name, and the friendship is never the same. But even after she dies in 1960, uh, and I think he, he's going to be alive for a few more years, even he's like, wow, she was pretty amazing. So, but in 1947, I'm sure he wasn't thinking that. He was probably saying, oh my. In fact, we know in his letters to Arnabon Timps, he's saying, oh boy, she was something else. Essentially, they're both saying that. So she's kind of alone. And one thing we haven't talked a lot about and one thing I didn't delve too much into in the book because I didn't have the evidence uh, is you wonder uh, where's her her family? We know that her mother died when she was young. We know that her, her dad died um, when she is in her late teens, uh, early 20s. Um, she was a wanderer. And even though she re- reconnected with her brother Everett Late in life, and got to know her nephew. Um, She appeared to be odd and not easily, you couldn't easily predict her moves. And I think that makes people uncomfortable too. So there are two narratives. Um, What she's producing might make people uncomfortable. Um, Her life choices make people uncomfortable. And so she was often alone. She was alone on that houseboat. Her third husband. Um, have been on that houseboat briefly with her. We don't talk about her her married life. A lot of people don't do that either, you know. So I, I think I hope that this book opens up lots of questions and and paths for any researcher or any storyteller to sort of dive into. It doesn't even have to be a monograph. Um, I was just talking to someone on my campus who works for our Natural History Museum. I was there last night, it's a beautiful space. It has, it's just filled with echoes and my first graduate degree is in dance. And while having dinner in that space, all I could think about were all the narratives I could tell. If I could write a choreo poem, it could still be uh, um, historically driven, historically centered. There's so many ways to tackle Hurston's life. It doesn't have to be a monograph, but I think that married piece would be something worth delving into. The Mayan piece would be worth delving into as well. So she wants to get to the, the east side of Honduras to find this ruin that we don't see until 2015 because of laser technology. Uh, she was on to something. She just didn't have the funding to, to get there. The Guggenheim was holding her at an arm's length. She'd earlier won two Guggenheim fellowships to do research in Jamaica and Haiti. And now she just appears to be this erratic woman. And maybe she was from time to time. She was an artist. She was a scholar. She was all these things. And when people can't easily pin you down, um, that makes them uncomfortable. I think there's some studies that show that most people want things to be black and white. And when things are gray, our, our heart rate goes up. So it is what it is. She was unapologetically Zora until <laughs> the end. <laughs> and you just had to sort of meet her where she was.
1: Yeah. 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 And all that, that, some of that comes out, as you said, in her, in, in your excerpts from the book where you talk about her correspondence, which I'm going to ask you about um, a little bit later. But I wanted to ask um, before we get to that about like the context of, of Honduras, because in the book, you really take great care to provide um, lots of different, you know, contexts for the, you know, for the story that you're telling. Um, you bring in sort of other, other, people who would have been there, other, you know, other things that have happened to different people in Honduras or different Americans who have traveled there. And um, you give us the political and social context as well. And I think this was a time of like intense business um, in Honduras from the United States. And so I wondered if you could um, just tell us a little bit about that context um, of what Zornial Hurston would have been entering into in, in Honduras.
0: Yes, I think it was really important especially having grown up in South Florida which is without question sort of a gateway to the rest of the Americas and or you could actually situate it in another way. I was just at a symposium at the University of Miami and someone um, offered he's an artist curator um, I don't want to mispronounce his name but he said for some people who live what you know, as we say south of the border, you know, we might be on the northern part of the rest of the Americas, you know? So the the point being, um I wanted to make sure the way in which I was raised in Miami, so, you know, have that Bahamian side. I'm growing up with people who's who descend from Cuba or who have friends who are from, excuse me, family members who are from, you know, Haiti, Jamaica, blah, 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 blah. And so that kind of expansive way of looking at the rest of the Americas was was like not lost on me as I delved into this story. But also the ways in which the United States is this powerful country that can be a savior or a foe to many smaller nations. And smaller, I want to put that in quotation marks, because, you know, Haiti is a sovereign nation that Jefferson will not you know, recognize in 1804, and this is you know first black nation in the Western Hemisphere, what we call the Western Hemisphere. But the point is, I wanted to make sure that what I already knew to be true because I lived through it, but also what I knew to be true. Transnationalism was my third field. Um, I wanted that training set in motion, but also Zora was a scholar; she was not unaware of you know, what the Americas look like. She was clever. She really wanted to steer clear of some of the politics happening on the ground in Honduras. She knew that her country, United States, had a lot to answer, answer for, you know, a lot of, a lot <laughs> for which to answer. Um, one thing we did not talk about, and I believe this is another path that someone may take <laughs> at some point with in greater depth, she was a political conservative. You know, she Came of age in a moment when some black people were still think, you know, calling Lincoln the Great Emancipator. I don't. I'm sure she was smart enough to know that he wasn't like only that. Not unlike Kennedy, he had sort of been. He had to be pushed to do the right thing. But she was a member of the Republican Party until her last breath, and so was Martin Luther King and a lot of people from that sort of interwar period. Um, FDR's New Deal era, yeah wonderful. We have, you know, access to public dollars in ways we hadn't before. People of African descent have moments when they can access the so-called American dreams in ways they hadn't before. Americans, period. We have a minimum wage, yada, yada, yada. But she always believed that Democrats used and communists use African Americans as pawns. So she goes to Honduras and she is going to latch onto the currency and being an American. I am an American. Yeah back home, I am black, you know, and I am a woman, but here I am an American. So this is patriotic thing happening. And she's got to be very, very careful because if you're a researcher in Honduras or any foreign country, you know, public officials want to know who you are and why you're there, you know, they're, they're going to narrate you. So I wanted to make sure the reader had the larger context. I wanted them to know about the instability that existed. I think Honduras had like 117 presidents since the independence movement. So 1821 to like, I don't know, 1930s. That's a lot of opening and closing doors, right? But they had this two-party system. And I'm not going to get into the weeds, but that kind of context was necessary. I think the reader needed to know that Samuel Zermery, the so-called Sam the banana man, um, uh, you know, a Russian who discovers a banana in Selma, Alabama, goes on to corner the market. And we see the rise of the banana republic, you know. Um, and then the United Fruit Company, he's at the head of this company. He leads a coup and he has some say over who's the president of, you know, Honduras. And she walks into this. Very theatrical and chaotic mess with you know big companies making money, um of course, folks on the bottom fighting for better wages and working conditions, and she's careful to st- steer clear of it because she's she's got something to say, but she says in her surviving letters it would be patronizing. I'm not sure what she meant with that particular word but you could tell she didn't want to get kicked out of the country. And at some point she is going to have to be accountable for what she did do. And that's what's so regrettable. We don't know what all she did down there. And maybe the documents were burned when her papers were set on fire shortly after she died. But what we do know is in the surviving letters, she's trying to get back to America because her editor has summoned her back. He, he sees one draft of seraph, He wants a second draft of serif. And he knows that she's got to come back to New York and stay focused. And she's got to go to, I think it was San Pedro Sula or to the capital city twice. So she's based in Puerto Cortez, where Unite Fruit Company has an office. And she, at one point, she's so powerful and she's you know brushing elbows with so many powerful people throughout the course of her adult life that she gets mail there on one occasion but before she leaves she's got to go and speak to someone and i i suggested that some government official wanted to know what she discovered what did she find who did she meet was she taking anything that's just me and again you have more training And I do on this front. Historians, you know, you know, I go to the National Archives in London. You have they have the cameras on us while we're looking through these documents. And you put the box back. (laughs) But An anthropologist, you know, you could be tracing through some hinterland and making some deals with some farmer. And you have all this stuff in your backpack. And the government's like, so what do you got? What you got there? <laughs> what do you plan to do with it? <laughs> you know, and, and increasingly we're having these conversations about what we take and what must be given back. Last week, my students went to Moundville. You know, this is where, the, you know, what we now call the Mississippians. So we cataloged using <laughs> indigenous people. Did they call themselves that? No. But there were so many empty cases. And it's because the University of Alabama did the right thing and gave so many things that never belonged to the university back to the indigenous people who first, the descendants of the people who first inhabited this land we call the Americas. So no, she can't just go, I'm going to go back to New York City. (laughs) So I wanted, I wanted, you know, I am generally speaking an expert in whatever that means on the antebellum period. So I had to master and the, you know, whatever you call master different types of literature, I had to get up to speed on Mayan history, on Latin American history, Latin American post-war history, Honduran history, post-war Honduran history, Um, during the Jim Crow period. What does Blackness mean south of our border? All of that, I believe, needed to be set out there for the reader, reader to grapple with, to fully understand this Zora. I think the, big, the biggest narrative we have of Zora is that she's this lively person in Harlem. And she's giving us these strong Black women like Janie Mae and their eyes are watching God, which is mine. But she's a scholar. she's studied with Franz Boas, a father of modern anthropology. This, this, she, this woman knows what she's doing. And not unlike any modern person, she's probably gonna try to get away with as much as she can. And especially cause
1: she's gotta, you know, stay fed. But she's trying to do the right thing too. Yeah, now that is fascinating. Her, uh, when when you say go, going there and we're not a hundred percent sure of all the things we did, but we do, you do know that she wrote uh, Seraph on the Swanee there um, in Honduras or at least the first draft. Um, and in the book, you you do talk about like her correspondence with her editor back and forth. I mean, that was, that was fascinating. Um, but also the book is stands out and you cut, you already t- talked about this. The board, the book is about poor whites in coastal Florida, um, you know, here she is a black woman writing about white people after she's written mainly about black characters her whole, you know, career. And as you mentioned, their eyes were watching God. Um, and you mentioned that the people in the book are shrimp farmers. And you mentioned that she volunteered on a shrimp boat before leaving for Honduras. And and you've already said a little bit about this, too. She was hoping for a Hollywood deal. So I wondered if you could just say um, something about the book um, and her hopes for it. Sure. Well,
0: Again, Sarah, if I've had it on my bookshelf. I, I was so shocked because I loved wherever I live, I take pictures. I like to just capture where I am for later periods to see oh my not, maybe what all I survived. I'm looking at this picture, I'm like, I've had seraph this long. So finally, I pick it up and I, because I have to read it. You have to read what she wrote down there. And I think she wrote about what she knew. One thing I discovered with the Miami book, and this is not, not new because so many people who do urban history or um, Southern history know that black-white contact in what we call the American South has been centuries in the making, as one scholar says, because of slavery. So, okay, white and black people may not worship together, may not um, dance together in the days in which she's, uh, uh, you know, moving through the South. They know each other. They know each other. So this white woman that she's writing about, um, she knows her. And it may seem odd to uh, an editor. It may seem odd to a Hurston fan that she wants to... um, offer this, this plot of of a white woman that as Alice Walker said, is impossible (laughs) to like Arve, (laughs) She's not, she's not an elite character you want to spend too much time with. But the more I did spend time with the book and Arve, I'm like, this, this is not a narrative. I would have picked to enjoy if that's the right word, (laughs) but I didn't walk away. Um, entirely unhappy. I was glad to see Hurston step out on some limbs and then and even now I'm thinking through what it must have been like to to live in Puerto Cortes so there's like mangled uh metal near her and I, what we didn't say is that there's so much unfinished about a modernizing Honduras that she gets to see. There at one point was this hope that this, you know, cross, you know, this continental train's going to come through but the fruit companies are there, and Texaco has this you know, petroleum uh, set up, and she can see all this happening, things that feel very modern. Um, but she's also got access to the mountains, and to, of course, if she made it to the East Coast, maybe she saw a rainforest. But she's also got this narrative that's not even said in Honduras on her mind. And she's got to complete this manuscript if she is going to get another check. She left the States with a $500 book advance. We know in our day and age, that's not a lot of money. And her day, that wasn't a small piece of money. But she, you know, loses some of the money. What I should say right now that she um, wanted to freelance for Holiday Magazine. And she tries to hire someone to take the photographs down there of a, a ruin that was closer to Puerto Cortes and she says to her editor something went wrong somewhere and i tried so hard to reach out to the the people who own whatever is left of holiday magazine that archive if it exists somewhere there might be something that she submitted there's no way we know what she submitted if the photos she took if they were her own but things didn't always go right. So getting back to Sarah, yeah, I think it's worthwhile to think through how she knew the South. She was a product of the South, the South that includes Black and white people. But what is it like to write a book where water is so much a central character and she's living on water? Um, That's worth sorting through. Who, um, Someone who teaches English, who's who's who's, or creative writing. I mean, there's so many different um, paths we can take to fully understand her time down there. Of course, anthropology students and scholars like yourself, there's so much you could peel apart. But the historian in me, I, I just, you know, had the archive, and I'm looking at what she says happened, and, and being skeptical. And then sometimes accepting, you just, you just take Zora as she is, but she wanted to write that book. And it, it was, it was well received, you know, by folks in literary business, but her fans are like, what is this? <laughs> what is, what is this? And then for the most part, she's, she's dismissed. Uh, and we know that it isn't until Alice Mark, uh, Walker in 1975 writing that essay for Ms., that even the average black person wants to have anything to do with her because she just sort of falls out of favor during the black arts movement. 1960s, you see this more radical brand of, of uh, black activism coming into being. So this political conservative side of her, you know, that's not something you want to openly embrace. You might be a Zora fan, but you might be someone who's like, I'm really not sure what to make of her. So she just sort of falls off the radar of a lot of folks um, for about fifteen years. yeah.
1: Yeah, no, Zora is the gift that keeps on giving and people can, as you said, bring to bear these literary studies of her, um, which tends to be even more than, you know, anthropology studies. Although, of course, anthropologists have written about her um, and historians, but and biographers. But I, I also like what you brought to bear on her, uh, you know, on her life as well. And your, your, the history that you, that you, that you offer us. And, you know, people will also enjoy in the book how, you do this analysis of the book, Seraph on the Swanee and you, you know, you go into detail about the book and the characters and, and, and things like that. So I know that people will really enjoy that. And so, and as you said, like, um, kind of, none of these things like really came to fruition for her as you know, that she went there to accomplish. Um, but, but I think you say she gained a sense of maybe self and rejuvenation. And so like, what, what did this period do for her? Um, as best I can tell, she has
0: a sense of, of humor until the end. So again, she's a performer, but she she tells her editor. So she's on her way back to the States and he wants her again to write, you know, the next draft and get this book done. And she said, I might have to be housebroken. <laughs> like she's been sort of in the middle of nowhere. She's been somewhere. She wasn't um, in uh, Puerto Cortes uh, the entire time. Um, she says that she has to write with a fin so she's clearly been on the coast i think that's pretty powerful she's giving you some hints about what did happen and in, in in the characteristically you know um lively and colorful and no pun intended way she it she offers it to us in a way that puts us right there she doesn't say, oh, okay, I'm on my way back. No, I have to be housebroken <laughs> before I leave. And I'm, I'm riding with, with a fin, not with my fingers or a pin, but with a fin, like I've been in the water. <laughs> like, I love this woman. Absolutely love her. So um, I forgot your question, but <laughs> I just think that um, she had an adventure, sort of like Janie Mae. When Janie sits down to talk to Phoebe, She's, I'm going to tell you what I did. And so we have these letters that survive. And she's like, I'm going, to tell you, I'm going to tell you everything, but I'm going to tell you what I did down there. And there's so much more we could know. And what we do know is that that visit is on the eve of something that nearly drove her to suicide. And because she was in Honduras, she probably survived that ordeal. Her passport proved that she was in Honduras when her former landlord accused her of molesting her son. Can you imagine facing that kind of accusation? And so she's this lively woman, her light's too bright, and she's making enemies, and then she's being accused. And so she says she's not only upset about that, she's upset that that Black people did it to her. Um, She said a court reporter, African-American, leaked the story without evidence. Um, black newspaper, um, I think it was a Pittsburgh courier for whom she'd actually freelance later with a, uh, Ruby McCollum story, um, ran it without evidence. And, you know, she tells Carl, you know, she can't live, but she finds a way to pull herself up away from even that nightmare. But thankfully, because she was in Honduras, her passport, is hard to argue with a passport. passport says, I wasn't even in this country when this kid or when this mom, his mom said, I did X, Y, Z. Um, and so we see her, if I may, seeming to unravel, however, some of her letters that final decade. Um, she's still the strong Zora that we know, but something isn't always adding up. And it is what it is. I have sadly, I've had to watch aging relatives um, not do so well in the last um, five to 10 years. And I think writing about this period of her life was one way for me to sort through that kind of caregiving role that I didn't expect, (laughs) but also to sort through my own aging body and what I want my body to do that it can't always do anymore. So whereas I used to be able to sit in front of a, you know, computer laptop for hours, you know, my body's like, no, fingers hurting, you know, back hurting, hips hurting, got to get up and walk. And so she's sitting on fruit crates in Fort Pierce is <laughs> still writing. She's till the end. Something in her wasn't going to let us easily feel sorry for her. Even if we want to say, oh, she died penniless, she gets to say, did you go to Honduras?
1: I think you're absolutely right. And I, I I like that idea of what you said, the adventure, because as I was finishing the book, and, and even as I was like phrasing these questions to you, I kept thinking about like, well, what, what did she get back? What was her what sense of self? And I kept thinking, because I kept phrasing the questions, well, what did she hope to find? What did she hope to get? And I thought, oh, it's first of all, it's just hope, right? It's like, this idea of like I'm going to go pursue this thing. I'm going to go find these things. I'm going to go, as you said, on this adventure. Which, in and of itself, you know, people talk about travel and just anticipating the travel, anticipating the the journey is itself like rejuvenating, um, and it can like change your perspective and give you like a, a heightened sense of of self and like kind of buoy you. So. Um, that's one of the things I was thinking as, you know, in reading and, and it's in the title of the book, like the chase, right? Like there's, there's some excitement in that and of
0: In ruins because, okay. So we hear the word ruin and we know there's this, you know, this one way of looking at a woman being ruined. Okay. That that's an awful thing, but ruins as in, Yeah mayan ruins or and then this whole idea of a lost city you know lost by whom was it really lost because i'm sure indigenous people's ancestors excuse me descendants there's an indigenous people knew exactly where it was okay but she she was alive she was hopeful as you said i like that word because in one of her letters she said she knew that there were men down in honduras who were plenty willing i mean she was a sexual a lot she was sexually alive I was, you know, I was 53. I I think I wrote in the book, I was 53 when I sat down to write the story, the same age she was when she left Mobile. And when I was in my 20s, I thought 53 was old. (laughs) And I'm like, here this woman is in her early 50s and she's ready to go party in Honduras while being the scholar that she is and the artist that she is. And I'm like, yeah, Zora, I feel you. She's just alive, alive. She doesn't want us to feel sorry for her.
1: Yeah. And speaking of uh, her being alive and you I like how you're, you share these different aspects of her letters um, and you cite these letters throughout the text. I also enjoy, um, you know, Hurston's turn of phrase and her quotes. They're so, they're so lively. And you just mentioned her talking about writing with a fin and how she had to be housebroken when she come, came back. I'm going to... Pull another quote from the book where she's writing to her patron Harold Jackman, and um, she's talking about her houseboat in Florida. And she wrote, she writes, "I'm having an amphibious existence." And she also writes, "Now don't get any picture in your mind of the Astor yacht, nothing like that." And so, you know, she's talking about sort of the state of the boat. Um, and so, you also write that she made copies of her letters, and you've been kind of talking about her letters. Um, Can you say anything more about Hurston, like as a letter writer and your experience going through her letters? Mm.
0: She was a prolific letter writer and we're lucky. (laughs) We're lucky that the, the letters that we do have were saved. And I believe, this is just me, that she knew she had a story to tell and that we would someday be reading those letters because often... When you write a letter, the letter goes to or letters, they go to many different people and you're lucky if those individuals or the people who survived them save those letters. In her case, if there's a copy of every letter, they're all together. So the archive is always with her. So shortly before she died, I think I say she's reached out already to University of Florida. She knows where some of her belongings will go, some of her writings will go. Um, and again, she was a performer. She, she, I think, was mostly aware of everything that she did. And with those letters, she knew, what, she, she knew what she was writing. She knew how she might be perceived by folks like ourselves decades down the road. And she made sure she got to have her say. She, she got to have her say. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Um, I'm grateful for her. I'm grateful because she had that kind of foresight. This was a brilliant woman. Huge legacy. The legacy that to which we cling, Harlem, that was just one piece. It's a huge piece, but one piece of her life. Right, and then she's allowed us to see, you know, the the formative years in Eatonville, and we we get to see her in Haiti and, and you know the Caribbean. Uh, there are moments when she's in my hometown, Miami. She's you know helping George Smathers. She's perfected the art of having a white patron. So this white moderate, he's running for U.S. Senate. She's going to be there with him. Um, she's, she's received his favor earlier. She received, uh, Fannie Hearst's favors, godmother's favor, you know, her white patron in, in New York, uh, the socialite. And for a while, this woman for whom she cooks in Miami beach is okay. And then the woman discovers Zora's famous. And she's like, well, one more week and I'm out of here. <laughs> she can't even, you know, do her housework because this woman wants to visit and have tea. Because she's got the celebrity living in her house, <laughs> and it's it's something to behold. I uh, was again just down in Miami, and I was trying to get downtown. And I kept telling the 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 Lyft driver, um, "I want to I want to go to downtown," and you're taking me to Miami Beach. And then and then I just said, "You know what? Just enjoy this," because I know exactly what's going to really happen. And sure enough, the driver ended up going through <laughs> Refo Alto right by Zora's house. (laughs) And I I said, okay, you have to stop. And thankfully it was a a very friendly driver. In fact, she gave me her phone number because she knew that my phone was going dead. And she said, here's my home number. If you need me, just call me via a landline or whatever, somebody else's phone. And I said, okay, let me tell you why this is a good mistake. And I told her about Zora. she, oh my goodness. She thought that was the coolest story. And she said she was going to go get the book. I said, you don't have to get the book. I'll mail it to you. And um, I don't know which country she was from. In Miami, everyone's from somewhere else. But she was Spanish speaking. And she was so thrilled to know that we were right by the house where Zora worked as a housekeeper and that this Black woman in the post-war period goes to Honduras and she's searching for this Mayan ruin, blah, blah, blah. And we weren't supposed to be on that island. And there we were. Hmm. Wow, Zora. She's she's somewhere in some other cosmos, just like, let's have a little fun here. (laughs) I'm going to make this car go in the wrong direction. I'm from Miami. I knew when she made that turn that we were leaving the mainland, that we're heading to the beach. And I'm telling her and she's not listening to me. And I just relax, just look at the water (laughs) and see where we end up. And sure enough, she did not take the same highway back she took the shortcut. So people in Miami know you take the Venetian causeway. If you want to get back quickly to the mainland, you have to pay, but who cares? And that's exactly where Zora was. And those houses are still fancy she was in a nice neighborhood
1: (laughs) yeah and I mean this this kind of brings me to to the next question I thought because I'm thinking about you and Zora Neale Hurston in that I saw this like tension between like movement and and home in a way because like Zora lives this like peripatetic life she's constantly moving she's on this houseboat but then you also like show that I think she lost the houseboat and then she was trying to buy a home, but that was thwarted. You, you catalog sort of these different addresses that she's receiving and sending letters. Um, but this is also like a story about Florida and this is like where you're from and where he's from. And so I just wondered if there was, if anything you could say about this like tension between like this constant movement, but also like being at home as well.
0: Definitely. Thank you for saying that. Um, So often when I read or hear things about the South, I can tell when someone's really spent time here. (laughs) And when I read something about Miami or I see some cultural product, uh, even Moonlight, a movie I absolutely adore. And Barry Jenkins is without question from Miami. But when other people come into the, the, the equation, say someone who's helping a film get to the marketplace, someone from Miami at a particular time will say, well, which Miami is that? Because there's some things that say the cinematographer is making some decisions about. And I'm like, well, I know that that is there, but when is it there? Because this character seems to be here in this moment. So when I read Zora, especially when she's in Miami and she says, you know, God keeps his appointment. Every sunrise, every sunset, I'm like, I used to work in the Miami Herald building. I know exactly which sunrise she's talking about. Or I used to, you know, live off of Northeast 82nd and Biscayne Boulevard. And I could see her going up Biscayne Boulevard to Lemon City, present day Little Haiti to pick up her mail. And there's just something about this sort of like um, way in which she tells you where she is if you're there, it's almost like you have something that so many people don't have, and then you cling to it like, I don't know what she's talking about. So, for instance, again, when I was at Miami, in Miami at EOM at that symposium, I met a man who was a columnist for the Fort Pierce Chronicle after Zora died. So the column that she wrote that we'll probably never know anything about unless someone clipped those columns because so far we don't know. If anyone saved anything, he knew the people that she knew. He grew up there and he wrote a column for the same black newspaper. And at some point when he was talking to me, he, he was breathless and he just sort of stopped and like no more words came. And I said, you know what? I understand. It's like, I couldn't possibly know everything he knew. All I could do was just bear witness to his access. You know, we talk about seven degrees of separation, two degrees of separation. I think there's some other thing happening that we can't even put words to. Like, I know that because I was there. You know what I'm saying? So when, so in 1989, I left the University of Miami and working for the Miami Herald, and I write the story, the first story on the first door, Neil Hurston Festival, I think it was in 1990, and, you know, I'm just kid out of college and I'm listening to Alice Walker. And, but then someone says, oh, you know, Zora's goddaughter is still alive. Matilda Mosley, she lives right there. You should go say hi to her. And, and the young woman that I was, I'd easily just go walk up to people, just start talking to them. You could be famous or not. Like one day someone said, Sherry, Donna Summer, did you know she's a painter? She's in that gallery right there. I you know, went to the gallery and next thing I know, Donna Summer is touching my braids. And I'm like, this is Donna Summer. But okay, so I want to ask you about that painting right there. So I literally went to Matilda Mosley's house and, you know, she was Zora's goddaughter, And she said, um, you know, Zora didn't touch that child. And I loved how she was fiercely protective. So this is a first Zora Neale Hurston festival. All these people have descended upon Eatonville 30 years after she's died. It's taken this long for this town to embrace and market her life. And here you have this older woman, you know, woman of few words. But the words she had to share were like, I know this Zora, sort of like, I know this Miami that Zora lived in. What I want to do someday, Reagan, is I want to know as much as I can that Honduras that she saw. And I don't know how to make it happen. I couldn't travel there when I was writing the book because what we haven't said is most of the research took place when we were initially on lockdown. Right. And I could have traveled there since then, but I don't want the tourist experience. Like I just I never like that way of traveling. So again, while I was in Miami recently, someone who's listening to me speak, he came up to me afterwards and he said, I'm from Honduras. And I said, Did I do right by your your country? And I don't even know what that means, but did I get anything wrong up there? And he said, No, you didn't. He said, I felt like I was At home, you took me home, and I said, "Well, when are you going back?" (laughs) And he said, "I'm going next week." And I said, "Well, I can't go. I can't go with you next week." And he said, "Anytime. When I go home, you're welcome to to go with me." And when people say I'm going to Honduras, when so many people are coming away from that direction, it it sounds ludicrous unless you're going to some hotel. Like I got this thing from AAA in the mail. You know, you know this cruise is taking you to this place in this Costa Rica, and, and of course, you know some fancy hotel. you you never really see anyone in Honduras. So I said, "Ah, eh, I don't want that."
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that sounds sounds lovely that the person came up to you after the talk and and said that and and invited you to come and probably show you more of the Honduras that you know he that he would experience as a local person. Um, that would be fascinating. It was. It
0: was- I think that was, and I met so many wonderful people my time down at UM, but I think meeting him hit me the hardest because again, you bear witness to something to which you can't even put words on. And he, he, he didn't say you, you got it wrong. He said, he said to me, his exact words, I could not believe I saw my country up there on the screen. And I'm like, well, anybody could put a map up there. But he said, no, it was what you were saying. And I said, well, then it's what Zora said. She took you there. And I'm just channeling what she said. He said, whatever it was, it was good. I was like, thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she's so she's still with us. Um so this is my, I guess, uh, last question. I guess about your work on the book. Um, and so I thought, you know, Zorniel Hurston, she can be considered this like beloved figure for many people, particularly many Black women, and um, I think many of people who are aware of her legacy kind of find joy in learning things about her, Any, anything new, right? Um, which I know people will enjoy your book for to take us to this other aspect of her life. And, but I wondered in your research, did you find anything particularly challenging, uh, joyful, or surprising in the process of doing it um, or in the material that you found? And I guess you, you've talked about the doing it during the pandemic, either um, talking about that a little bit more or anything else that you found. Challenging or surprising?
0: Okay, so the challenge, if I may, two things. The first is what I've already mentioned. That's the sort of political conservative uh, narrative. We don't uh, generally hear people speaking of her in that manner, but it makes total sense that she would hold FDR at a distance. Um, she's in Harlem when communists are using people of African descent, and she 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 gets it. She gets how we could have conversations today (laughs) about which political party needs us for whatever reason. So I was surprised to see, well, even her final letter, she's corresponding with white moderates and almost, I won't say worshiping at their knee, but it makes sense that she's still talking to people who would position her as one of the good ones, you know, And she holds on to that role until the end, even when her letters don't always seem coherent. um, There's, you know, Florida governor and his wife, Ms. Mary, they still adore Zora. (laughs) You know, George Smathers is sending correspondence to her. This is like pretty high level stuff. You know, it's just pretty amazing. And I wasn't expecting that. But again, those letters have been out there for a while. Um and then the the, the artist or Sunday painter in me wasn't expecting to see how much I longed to to be there um in Hon- in Honduras because but then why not? When I was working on Remember Me to Miss Louisa, I had to go to Cincinnati, I had to walk on the Ohio, I had to walk, I had to go to Natchez, Mississippi and walk on the, the Mississippi River there when I'm trying to access. The, I don't even know what the word is, that space that black women found themselves in when, for whatever reasons, when we know some of the reasons, they're receiving white men's favor before the Civil War, the unthinkable things that they have to survive. Okay, that's one thing. But then what does the air smell like? Does it still smell the same? What is the color of the sky? What does the light look like? How does the water flow? Like I needed those things. I sat on the James River while writing that book um, in Virginia. I had to be there in this case I couldn't. So as I told the folks down in Miami, um all these Amazon boxes are coming in the mail cuz we're ordering so many things so we can't go shopping and I just started making these dioramas. And I wanted to play with that that Zora who had life. And I wanted to show the aftermath of parties. <laughs> so all the dioramas had these sort of dark spaces cuz I think this was a a moment in her life that was pretty dark. And wh- when the light does show up is, I think it's because she sets it in motion. So I made these little dioramas and I wasn't expecting to to need that. Like I was just going to say, ah, oh, you can't go. You can't go, Sharon. He's like, no, you can go. You can bring Honduras here as best you can. And, um, and it, and it ended up being that the, the, the little dioramas were not Honduras. They were a stand in for whatever emotions she felt, whatever joy she felt. I use these little Barbie doll, even though they're like neon pink, you know, shoes. And, and I use confetti, you know, inside of those dark cardboard boxes, I painted them, you know, dark, dark brown to just sort of show you the, or at least show myself the tensions between All of the the good and the not so good, she had to be sorting through. I mean, Zora wasn't very healthy. We didn't discuss this, but she wasn't, she had stomach problems and she had hypertension toward the end, but she was not very healthy in the 50s. And she will say at some point that she thought that her stomach illness in particular was an outcome of some impure water that she had in Honduras. At one point she says maybe her you know, interest in voodoo, something may have happened. And she opened herself up to a negative uh, force that, you know, had some, ne- you know, negative effect on her body. So, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't expecting to, to need to physically feel something because Miami you know, the, the sky has a certain kind of light. In Iceland, the sky has a certain kind of light, and you can, you can smell the surf in Miami. It's humid and salty, but something else is going on. And I wanted to know, is that true in Puerto Cortez? You know, is that true on the mosquito coast? Not every coast is the same. So if we're, so she's born in Alabama, but raised in Florida. She spent a lot of time on on water. And I grow, I, my first former, first years of my life, my formative years, I'm in Coconut Grove, and I'm within walking distance of the bay. I've grown up smelling salty water that you can also smell mud, mud, mud in it, because there's some brackish water nearby if it's coming inland. I know she knows those smells. And I, I just kind of needed to be with that, With with, I won't even call it art. It's just sort of making things with my hands and trying to put myself there. And I longed for that. Even now with these birds that I'm making, um, I am going to Ogali because I believe next to Honduras, those were her happiest years where she tried to buy that cabin twice. You know, she says in Langston, they want $4,000. They just couldn't stand the idea of a black woman owning that cabin, it's no longer there. They should have preserved it but I love now that I live in Alabama and I have birds that are around me and they know me and I know them. And especially if they have babies, they know how to come to to the window and get my attention. If someone is like, you know, whether it's a snake or a buzzer, something around is going to touch those babies. They come and let me know and I can either open and close the window and scare off whatever. And so she writes this letter and she talks about the birds in oh And once she carried off a snake and I'm like, I still need to be where she was, however I can be. And so I love making these birds because I think and I didn't expect this. Like Zora, things may not be going right, but you can look around you and there's still wonder. Some of it is natural. And for me in Alabama, it's 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 definitely birds. Definitely birds. I know that sounds corny, but it's true, Reagan. <laughs>
1: That's really, that's really interesting. I've never, I've never heard of, heard that before. And I, and I appreciate that the, the diorama um, aspect. And so, especially during the pandemic, like we can't go to the thing, so we'll bring the thing to us is, um, and using your own like creative and artistic ability to do that is just, um, I think that's amazing. Um, that's a, that's a great, a great example as well for other researchers and people looking to, you know, looking to, experience something that they can't necessarily reach out and touch. So thank you so much for that. Um, And the final uh, question is just to wrap up and it's to ask like now that the chase and ruins is out, um, what are you working on next? um, Or what projects do you have? Are you thinking about uh, Mm -hmm. undertaking?
0: Well, I need to return to the project I was on when this got in the way. So of course, Zora just took over. (laughs) So literally, I was writing this book about Black Miamians and their uh, post-war housing experiences. And very quickly, um, of course, there's Jim Crow in Miami, especially now with climate-related gentrification. You can't afford anything. And neighborhoods neighborhoods that were once predominantly Black are so gentrified now. But I interviewed 36 people over a 10-year period. Actually, a seven year period, it's 10 years now. And Pan America awarded me a grant in 2020. In fact, it's right before we went on lockdown. I literally went up there to get the award or to, to participate in the celebration. And I remember being at LaGuardia and like I couldn't stop eating. And, and the guy who's serving me pancakes and bacon, he's like, Are you okay, sister? I'm like, I'm going to get on this plane and maybe I'm going to die. Like, <laughs> because the hotel where I was was a block away from where the, they say the first guy, blah, 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 who knows. But the point is, is this, the Zora book took over, and now I have this, this manuscript and I'm reading through it again. And, you know, I'm like, I still need to place this book. But a book that you started on, this is 2023, the world that we had in 2020, 2019, even 2013, is not the world in which we live now. So I have to put a new top on it. And so much has happened to me. Um, I'm older, I'm taking care of, again, ailing people. And I love, this is a sorrowful time. And it's it's just really hard to, to sort of finish this project, but I, I have to. I have a, a colleague who's writing a book that feels sort of like this book. She's writing it while her parents are alive and I and she has to finish it. I feel like I have to finish this. And I wrote a screenplay about this and it actually placed, this would be about the Zora narrative. And I took a lot of artistic licenses, but that was another way that I got through the pandemic, which the initial days. Um, and it, I needed to see it cinematically. You know, and I and there's this moment in the the screenplay and it may n- nothing may ever come of it. But I bring Lisa Left Eye Lopez into it because not unlike Hurston, um, she 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 goes south of the border. And so he, here you have a, um, this rapper singer who's with TLC and it's one of, you know, the R&B groups getting a lot of attention in the 90s. And she dies right in 2002 I think it was on the eve of her 30, 31st birthday? I mean, there's just something tragic in there and, and about that. And so she and Hurston are like years apart, but that sort of very alive way of moving through um, uh, the world, they shared that. So in the screenplay, they 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 come, they, they, they cross paths through a woman who was alive, an uh, an elderly uh, Honduran woman who would have had a moment with Hurston and, and then she would have a moment with, with Lisa. And that's, what's the cool part about, you know, having the creative side is that you can take those leaps that Zora herself took. Cause again, she was a poet. She, she, she wrote screenplays. I don't know. We didn't talk about that, but Langston Hughes, Arnabon Temp, so many people who are, you know, core members of the Harlem Renaissance, all of them wanted to sell a movie to Hollywood. Zora herself worked for Warner brothers So, um, so why not? If Zora wrote a screenplay, I'll write a screenplay.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I know people will really, you know, enjoy this book. They'll enjoy reading it. And as you said, you know, if, if Zora can do it, like she, she's very much an inspiration, I think for, for a lot of us. And I found that inspiration in the book and, and in talking with you as well. So thank you so much for, for sharing the book with us. Um i'm I'm Reagan Gillum, and I've been speaking with Dr. Sharony e. Green, who is the author of the book The Chase and Ruins: Zora Neale Hurston in Honduras, and this was published by the Johns Hopkins University Press. Thank you so much, Sharony, e., for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Reagan.